0: Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by idealworkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, Aspirus.co, and Linkshare.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi James. Hey, how are you? I'm well, and you're in Japan, right? That's right. Yes, and I think I'm actually calling you now from very early morning from Delhi, India. Who am I talking to? James Rinney, who heads up the 500 Startups Japan Fund. And I think I got this interview through the help of a common friend by the name of Arnold Bonzo. James, you have a very interesting career. You started off being an analyst from an investment bank before going to startup and venture capital. How did the story started?
1: Well, first of all, I I met my co-founder at JP Morgan. So it was was a guy that's working in the technology department. And it started out, we were just, you know, interested in doing various projects just after work. It was just kind of like we would hack away at things at night. And then at some point, we pitched at something called Startup Weekend. I don't know if you're familiar. I think they have.
0: It's very uh, popular in Singapore as well.
1: Yeah. Oh, is it? Okay. So, but anyway, so after that, you know, we weren't really taking things too seriously, to be honest with you. So there's no sort of like sexy creation story. But after the pitch, we were approached by some VCs. And that's when we sort of thought, okay, well, maybe I could actually take this a little bit more seriously. So over the course of the next six months or so, we raised money for an idea that we a little bit had a little bit more conviction about. So once we raised, we actually did end up sort of bouncing around a number of ideas. And Eventually, what we came up with was something called stories.jp. The easiest way to describe it is like a medium.com of Japan. People, you know, focus on longer form content. So some of the stuff that was published on that platform got quite a bit of traffic and we were getting a lot of inquiries from the major publishers in Japan, like Kadokawa or Kodansha, for example. And so those turned into actual publishing deals. So what the platform kind of evolved into was a place for people to publish their personal stories. Some of the best stuff would actually go on to become books and the most successful one you know was an amazon number one bestseller in japan any bookstore that you go to it'd be like in the top five and eventually that went on to become a movie and the movie grows something like 23 million at the box office and just to give you like more perspective in japan it's a smaller market right so iron man 3 grows something like 20 million or you know something like that so It was quite successful by japan standards so then after that one of my vcs their lp was actually dna and as you know dna is a big it slash gaming company in japan and about two years ago they were launching their corporate venture capital arm and you know it's very common in japan now that uh, a lot of these companies are opening their corporate arms i was basically responsible for the silicon valley investments and the southeast asia investments and yeah that's that's how i kind of fell into VC.
0: So in your journey, you founded as the company Resil Press, which is behind <coughs> stories.jp. So yes. that's probably your entrepreneurial role. So maybe tell me any interesting lessons you have learned in that process as an entrepreneur before going to the venture capital side?
1: Yeah, I think you know, a little bit more time, like, you know, this is pretty recent, like, you know, a few years ago. So I think I need to reflect more valuable lessons where but I guess the one that I can think of on the spot is swallow your pride. And from my experience, when I was raising, I was only 23. And of course, that's an excuse. But I really had no idea what I was doing. I had so much pride that I didn't really reach out to people that had kind of been through it before. It may sound crazy now because, you know, everyone seems to be a startup mentor or advisor. I kind of get annoyed when people say that they're like mentoring all these people. But that wasn't really common at the time when I was starting a company. I mean, startups were not necessarily cool. And so it's not like people were just giving advice without even getting asked. I, in retrospect, I definitely should have been more aggressive about reaching out to people that had done it to see whether I was getting good terms. And so I think my inexperience was a little bit taken advantage of. I would advise anybody that hasn't really been through it before, just really make sure what you're signing up for so that you're not getting a really disadvantaged term sheet.
0: You came from the States and then you moved to Japan. I mean, that itself is an adventure. So what made you move there then?
1: Well, actually, you may not know this, but I spent a lot of my childhood in Japan. Ah. Um, So up until I was 15, on and off, I was basically in Japan and in the U.S. And so that's why I speak Japanese and, you know, I have a pretty deep connection with Japan. From
0: there, you joined DNA Capital as a principal, then you work as a venture capitalist. So I guess the interesting part of it is, it is a corporate VC space where the interests are slightly different from traditional VC model. So what are the lessons learned there?
1: The lessons for corporate VC? I think you wrote Um, an article
0: about corporate VC is king in Japan. I mean, I know GRI, DNA, a couple of these gaming companies have set up VC arms at it. Why is that so?
1: Yeah, so what I mentioned in my article is that VC in the US, most of that capital is coming from institutional investors like pension funds and insurance companies, uh, endowments, etc. That's not the case in Japan. And there's a few reasons. But I guess one core reason is that the returns haven't been spectacular. There has to be something else other than returns that people are incentivized. Well, okay, so corporates are more incentivized from a strategic angle than they are from a financial angle. What they want to do is they sort of the hot word now is open innovation. They see it as a way to kind of still keep in touch with what's going on in the startup world and understand what's being developed that may disrupt their main businesses or their cash cows.
0: I suppose that most of these corporate VCs that are set up in Japan are mainly also to diversify their traditional portfolio business. I mean, for example, you know, SoftBank has been doing venture capital for a very long time. I mean, they are now investing in almost most of the unicorns in Asia or even in the US. Is that really the motivation for most of these companies? I mean, from your own experience as well in DNA?
1: Yeah, okay. So the way that I like to describe gaming companies all of a sudden doing these venture capital arms is that if you look at Google, search is their cash cow, right? I mean, they they generate tons of cash from that. And they invest in a lot of other areas like, for example, robotics. And no one thinks it's weird because, you know, that's the way Google has sort of branded itself. But in Japan, DNA is kind of similar in the sense that a lot of the cash comes from gaming, but DNA also does even getting into robotics and live streaming, like a lot of other areas. And so it's not so strange here. And so think of it as the, the main business is just a cash cow and they're invest- they know that gaming is not necessarily going to be the future of the company. And so, you know, they're investing that cash into other emerging areas while they're in a position to do so.
0: You made a move to hit up the 500 Startups Japan Fund. What made you do that?
1: Well, a number of things. Well, first of all, there's there hasn't been a globally recognized venture firm investing in Japan. Very few cases, right? I kind of feel like there's a lot of stuff is overlooked here. And the 500 opportunity is kind of a way to prove that. I mean, it's very contrarian, right? It's almost like Japan is the ultimate contrarian bet. But there is a lot of entrepreneurs here that are working on really interesting technologies, but I just feel like that's sort of overshadowed by these globalization plays like India and and China. So for me, it was, I feel like it's, of course, we feel like we can make money, but it's kind of like doing well by doing good sort of situation. The thing I like about 500 is that it's giving opportunities to people outside of Silicon Valley because there's plenty of smart people outside of Silicon Valley. And so it's kind of leveling the playing field, which to me is inspiring.
0: Actually, prior to setting up the Japan Fund, I mean, Dave McClure have actually made a couple of investments in Japan. I remember Gango, yes. which is one of those companies that were being invested by Dave and subsequently also raised a lot of funding. So while you joined dna you probably have evolved how you think about investing in startups maybe verticals do you have an investment thesis
1: i don't the thing is like at the seed level nothing's obvious and so the the best anecdote for this is that even dave right founder of 500 startups he passed on uber at the seed level right and that's probably like his greatest regret but At the time, you know, ride sharing was not really a thing. In Japan right now, there's like fintech is hot. Like everyone wants to get into fintech. IOT is hot. But the problem is that when you, when you chase trends, valuations go up and usually it's the not so obvious bets that tend to make you a lot of money. So our priority is basically we want to attract the, the best entrepreneurs. And so we want to be the first investor that any uh, high quality entrepreneur contacts. And then we make a judgment whether you know their timing is right or this is the right team to execute, those kinds of things. But we really don't want to sort of pigeonhole ourselves into one area and then miss out on some other opportunity. Do you have
0: any verticals that you actually look to invest into then?
1: As you know, probably virtual reality. I think it has a lot of opportunities. And I think especially in Japan, Japan has a lot of sort of natural escapism. So, you know, of course, you know, gaming is huge, but then also there's anime and there's manga and there's also a very established foreign industry. And so all this stuff is very, 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 well, anyway, so virtual reality, this sort of this idea where you're putting something on your face and just escaping your reality is, I think it fits with the way Japanese tend to look at entertainment.
0: Do you think Oculus Rift will work? in a Japan environment? I mean, they are going to be launching their 599 device. I mean, they launched, they showed it in CES recently. Do you think that the Oculus Rift will also work in Japan, given that you you think that the VR market is going to work in this case?
1: That's a tough question. The problem with Oculus is that you still need to have a pretty powerful computer for it to work. So that is going to be a limitation. So maybe not Oculus Rift, at least initially, unless they come up with a different product after that. There are a lot of other ways to consume it. And the obvious one is Samsung Gear VR ER or something similar to that, where it's you're just a mobile phone that you just plug in. That's And it's actually quite good. I, have you tried it before?
0: Yeah, I think I've tried the Samsung Gear. It is pretty good, actually. Uh, the HTC yeah. one is better. From my yeah, H-
1: HCC is amazing. HCC is great.
0: Other than looking at the VR, AR space, is there any interesting ones like maybe Internet of Things or even in fintech or maybe looking at some verticals, no one looked at? I mean, robotics is one, probably one of the most exciting ones because...
1: Yeah, but, I mean, robotics is kind of an obvious one. The reason that... It's it's hot in Japan. Is that the aging population gets people thinking about okay, what what are we gonna do if we run out of people, or you know, we have a lot of old people, so we have to create exoskeletons to for them to be able to you know continue in the workforce, or you know, so these sort of macro challenges that people are thinking about, and naturally robotics fits into that. Another one that I think is going to be interesting is in healthcare. So in Japan, the the laws around telemedicine have become a lot looser and so, you know, you can have services like Doctor on Demand or, or Tap, for example, pop up and there really hasn't been a lot of energy being put into that. So, I, you know, if I were to predict right now, which I don't like to pontificate about the future that much, but probably like in two or three years there's going to be uh, the same sort of excitement around healthcare that there is in fintech uh, in Japan now.
0: So I I guess moving from a more corporate VC looking at very series A, series B kind of deals to a kind of early stage, what are the kind of traits you look in in startup founders before you invest in them?
1: Yeah, so so I mentioned this before, but one of the most important things is their ability to sell. And so, you know, the three things that I'm looking at, this is by the way, Aside from whether, you know, they have experience in this, in this area, their background, I'm looking at more just like core personality traits. And so the CEO needs to be able to sell the vision of the company. And then the other part is the, the recruiting, right? So the the three parts, vision of the company, ability to create top talent, and then also keep cash in the bank. And if you look at all three of those tasks of the CEO, all of them require an exceptional ability to sell. And so basically that's that's what I'm looking for in the CEO and if those, all those are checked aside from you know background timing, stuff like that, I tend to go ahead with the investment.
0: So you're looking for the hustler basically.
1: Yeah, the hustler, but, you know, a hustler with authenticity, right? I don't like salesy types, but there's got to be some authenticity in there. (laughs) You know what I
0: mean? Have you looked at any interesting companies in your portfolio? Maybe you can tell me one, two or three of them.
1: Oh, you're in India right now. So lookup is interesting. It's basically, you know, you think about when you, let's say you want to make an appointment somewhere or you want to see if a store has something in stock or something like that. Calling is kind of takes a long time. And like maybe it's, you know, they put you on hold or maybe they don't pick up or whatever it is. Basically, it enables the shops to be contacted through chat. And so it's one of the first ones in India to actually do this. So there are some competitors now, but the founder's name is Deepak. And uh, Deepak's just a really, you know, inspiring entrepreneur. If you're in India, I I encourage you to meet him. Any other interesting (laughs) companies other than Lookup? Another one, sorry, this is outside
0: Japan, correct? Or DNA, when you're in DNA.
1: Yeah, yeah, so when I was at DNA. So Mm. another one I like is Coins.ph. Are you you familiar?
0: Yes, it's a Philippines Bitcoin company. I met the founder in a dinner together with uh, Liz Gaines from Recode. That one was of doing remittance, basically, Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, it's remittances, but I would also look at it as uh, just a mobile wallet or a mobile bank. Bitcoin in general, I don't know whether there's going to be a future where everyone's holding Bitcoin instead of some kind of government currency. But the blockchain technology is interesting. And the way that Ron has been able to utilize that to create a really, really smooth experience as a mobile bank. I think is you know phenomenal, especially in a country where the banks are not necessarily reliable. In Philippines, like banks can go out a couple hours and there's like, nothing you really can do about it. So I think there is opportunity to disrupt, for lack of a better word.
0: I was looking at some data. I think Philippines and even Indonesia have less than 10% bank customers. Well, the, the in the banking industry, there's a term called bank and unbanked. So it can tell yeah. you that there's a big population of people that actually doesn't have a bank account.
1: No, not only do they not have a bank account, but in a lot of cases, they don't even trust the banks because there are these situations where, like, they go out for a few hours and you can't, like, uh, withdraw money, things like that. So obviously people are on edge. There's other factors, of course, like whether they even have that much cash on hand. Like a lot of them tend to live paycheck to paycheck. So there are those, those things. But, you know, as the middle class grows in Southeast Asia, obviously they're going to need some sort of banking service. And, I think Coins has really built a phenomenal product for that.
0: So you have Lookout, you have CoinStop PH. Why don't we do the third one? Anyone, Any last one?
1: Yeah. So going back to VR, Penrose and Verse. Have you heard of those? No,
0: I have heard of them.
1: You have not. Okay. So both of them are creating VR content. And the thing about VR that I like to make clear is that it's like trying a new food. And so if you try a new food at a terrible restaurant, you're going to get a bad impression. And you might not think, let's say that you try a, a really terrible VR experience. You might think, oh, VR is at this level. This is never going to reach mainstream. And so I've tried a lot of VR content. And I have to say that Penrose and Verse, VRSE, have been some of the best content I've tried. So immediately when I tried those, that, that was like, that was it for me. I, I, I feel like those guys are really ahead of the game in, in creating compelling experiences in VR.
0: Just to tie back to the VR conversation again, so you think that VR is actually all in the content?
1: Not necessarily. I think that it is a very, it's a different medium. And so there are a lot of things that need to be explored. And I think the people that start now are going to be the winners because I think there's a lot of R&D that's, that's needed to, to make compelling content.
0: So I guess we talk about your career, we talk about five hundred startups and then I would want to ask you a little bit more about the Japan startup ecosystem. I mean I interviewed Hiro Miada from Binos Capital before he has his own take of the ecosystem. How do you see the Japanese startup ecosystem given that there was a lot of successful companies, had their corporate VCM and also SoftBank in the ecosystem? Do you see them very distinct and very separate? How does the, the ecosystem itself has evolved over the last few years, given so much activity? happening?
1: What's happening in Japan is that, so there's a saying that the nail that sticks out gets hammered, right, in Japan. And what that means is that, you know, if you're, if you have new ideas, you should, you should probably just keep your head down and and let the authority control everything. But in Japan, what you've seen in the past five years is that the hammers are actually pulling out the nails. So you have, you know, executives at these big companies actually encouraging entrepreneurship and wanting to, to invest. And on our side, you know, obviously we're, we're fundraising in Japan. We're always hearing from LPs. We want to work with, on, with startups. We just don't know where to start. And I think that's a pretty good sign because I think that is also an indicator that there may be more M and A activity. There has been uh, a growth, but it's been subtle. But I think over the next five years or so, that's probably going to change. And if the, if the M and A activity increases, that increases obviously the returns in the VC asset class and so that means more upside for entrepreneurs, more smart people joining those companies and also more money chasing those entrepreneurs. So right now there's about a billion dollars invested in venture capital. I think that as long as we can increase the exits, you know, we can increase that pie to let's say 5 billion to 10 billion.
0: There was a very interesting point that was made by Hiro the last time around about most Japanese startups typically go public in the Nikkei stock exchange after their B round. Because yeah. the amount to go public is actually not that high in Japan. Do you see this trend change in the future? Because I think Smart News, which is a very interesting Japanese news reader company, has already gone beyond Series C and they're trying to expand out of Japan. Do you think that that trend will also, that old thinking will also change as well?
1: Yes, the the bar for going public in Japan is much lower. So that makes it a lot easier to get some liquidity. And so people tend to opt for that. Another thing is that because there's not much M&A, IPO kind of seems like the only way out. But then another factor has been that there there hasn't been a whole lot of growth capital available. And so you had to go to at some point when you're raising, let's say, like, you know, 20, 30 million dollars, there was really nowhere to go to. It was like, okay, we just have to raise in the public markets. But now, as you're seeing, like like you mentioned with Smart News or Mercari, that's not necessarily the case. Like, you know, there are big companies or even institutional investors that are willing to write much bigger checks for for Japanese startups. So the dynamics have changed for sure.
0: I've read some of your articles on the internet. So you are very contrarian about talking about the rocket internet seeding good founders and also Japanese craftsmanship culture that are not effective for the startup ecosystem why so
1: those are two different things right? yeah, the yeah, rocket yeah. Internet. Yeah. yeah 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 so for in regards to my thoughts on rocket internet i actually don't think it's very contrarian to think that rocket internet alumni may make good founders so the reason is is not so dissimilar from thinking that maybe ivy league grads are perhaps are good or good founders so mm-hmm. as a vc you know you're looking for signals that a person you want to you might invest in is smart or has potential, but most would not argue that, you know, Rocket Internet or Ivy League alumni or people that go there, go there are not smart. So these credentials are really just filters from all the noise that VCs are bombarded with. So, you know, look at, I. so, okay, this person is Ivy League grad, he might be smart, he may be able to build an interesting startup. Same thing, okay, this guy worked at Rocky Internet, that's somewhat of a filter, so he may be able to build uh, an interesting startup. And then another factor is that when you do a startup, like I was saying, one of the really important things is your ability to recruit really good talent. And if you already have an established network of of really good talent, it's going to be a lot easier to recruit. Same thing. If you're an Ivy League alum, you can just tap into your alumni network. If you're a Rocket Internet alum, you can also tap into your alumni network. But the Rocket
0: most of them are not out to build real companies. They're out to build more flipping companies. At least this is what I observe in the Southeast Asia ecosystem. And they don't tend to last very long in terms of even getting into their corporate side. I think it's a question of attitudes. I mean, are you really funding entrepreneurs necessary or are you necessarily funding, you know, the right guys with the right for the five year, 10 year vision? I think that that's where I have a little bit of thought about this, the problem of having rocket internet. For me, they're just a necessary evil to the ecosystem.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. They're a necessary evil. And I I don't think that rocket internet companies uh, in general are very sustainable but i think there are people that join those companies that are very smart and capable and could potentially build interesting companies so i don't know i mean it's not like everyone that goes to stanford is going to build a unicorn a, it, they're they're all outliers so it's mm-hmm. not like every founder from rocket internet is going to build a unicorn either so it's a very small percentage but i think there is potential
0: so you see that as just a seeding ground for a startup network basically to tap on talent
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Uh, how about Japan's craftsmanship culture? That's something that I probably object, but I want, to hear <laughs> you, I want to hear your perspective.
1: Yeah, so craftsmanship. Okay, so you're referring to my blog post about perfectionism, right?
0: Yeah, um, because I, I, yeah. I'm a fan of Japanese culture. I visit Japan every year and I have t- actually adopted a lot of Japanese craftsmanship culture into my work these days. It actually gets better even in thinking about the next startup I want to do. But I think you, you see it contrary but I think it's interesting to hear your perspective because you live there you know you have grown up there and you're looking at the startup culture we sometimes require dirty and quick so it may not work so I thought thought maybe it's good to hear what you have to say first yeah
1: so perfectionism is good right japan has a reputation for perfectionism the only problem with perfectionism is when it paralyzes your ability to move quickly for web services not everything needs to be perfect before you deploy your product so you can push things out can iterate and you can correct things pretty quickly so done not perfect is is a much better strategy but i will say that now that hardware has you know it's going through a renaissance japan's perfectionism can actually work to their advantage so for hardware done not perfect is probably a terrible strategy right i mean la- last thing you want is a malfunction that could hurt people or result in a recall and permanently damage your company's reputation so in hardware japan's approach is probably good but in software it may not be the best
0: do you think that that's also the reason why they haven't have a very good software companies e- emerging from all their you know like for example the best consumer electronics for example sony because of this yeah, perfect. Yeah. i think i think that's the context of how you you frame this argument that, that there's a problem with that profession culture in japan right
1: absolutely i do think that that is a huge reason why there are i mean there are billion dollar software companies in japan obviously but not necessarily able to go global so they There's the perfectionism thing where they're not really moving quickly. But then there's there's a whole other discussion that we could go into about Japanese companies unable to to globalize. But we could talk about that for like a different session.
0: Just my penultimate question, where are the promising areas you think That Japan can lead in terms of technology startups. I mean, you mentioned hardware. Are there any areas as well?
1: Yeah, I think I'm beating a dead horse at this point, but I think hardware is interesting because the Japanese that have traditionally gone, like, you know, the really, really talented, smart Japanese that have traditionally gone into, you know, Sony or, uh, Sharp, for example, are not necessarily thinking that those companies are good platforms for them to launch interesting products. And so they're going to be more incentivized to just go out on their own. Rather than joining these companies. So I, you know, we're already seeing startups where. It's like, you know, former Sony engineer, former Sharp engineer that have left or or even gotten laid, laid off. I think that you're going to see more hardware oriented startups. The other thing is robotics. Like I said, aging population is going to compel Japanese to start working on more of macro problems. Yeah, so actually one that I forgot to mention is the silver market. The reason that the silver market is interesting is because basically all developed countries are going to face an aging population, right? That's that's going to be a problem pretty much in all developed countries but japan is facing it first so because japan is facing it first they're going to be working on these problems you know a lot of the problems that are solved can be you know the solutions can be applied to other markets and so i do think that there are you know japan could be a leader in let's say the silver market now that's not very sexy (laughs) <laughs> but it's still a massive market, so I think there is potential.
0: My last question, then: How do my audience find you, James?
1: You can follow me on Twitter. It's uh, James_Riney. You're also welcome to follow me on Facebook. It's Facebook.com/slash James_Riney. There's no period or underscore there. And also follow me on my blog, James James_Riney.com. So James R I N E Y.com.
0: You can find me at blongcw or bernardlong.com or subscribe to us at Analyze asia on twitter or you can find us on a stitcher soundcloud and itunes and please give us a rating and of course drop me a feedback anytime from twitter and we will respond to that once again james thank you very much for coming on the show and interesting conversation
1: hey thanks for having me